Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to Girl Power Hour with Tasha Humphreys and me, Annette Bingham, in windy Lubbock, Texas. Wow, so windy. still here. (laughs) I'm still here. I haven't blown away. Well, I think half the state has blown into Lubbock County. (laughs) Um, It's horrible. Everybody's like sniffling and coughing and the dogs are going, I don't really want to be outside. And so we're just kind of, <laughs> so if if we you hear us coughing, we'll try to mute as much as possible, but sometimes it's just not possible. Can't get it fast enough. So we'll be sniffling and coughing through this session, which will be okay. Yeah. So it's all of you um, with allergies and migraines and sinus problems as a result of this. Gosh, all my apologies. All, yeah. I hate it for you. It's just tough. We all have it. And I think mine's worse uh, since I was in a, since I had been exposed to mold last year. And and um, it's like, I really do feel like it's gotten worse for me because normally I'm not yeah. this bad. But I think it's affected yeah. my system some. Yeah, we're talking about toxic parents today, but boy, you lived in a toxic environment for a while there. I I did. I did. And it's better. Yes. (laughs) I didn't die and um, (laughs) have a great space now, so I'm not, no complaints there. Hey, did, okay, if anybody has gone on Heart Journey Studio, you know what I'm doing. Do you know what I'm doing, Tasha? I don't know. Maybe that you should one, tell me and everyone else out there. It's 100 days of meditation challenge. Yeah. Now, and I love it. Love that you're doing it. I meditate two to four times a week normally. And it's anywhere from like 10 minutes to 30 minutes. But I've challenged myself to meditate for an hour every day for 100 days. Anybody that wants to join me for any length of time, just I think just doing it for 100 days, no matter if it's 10 minutes or 30 minutes, is going to be super beneficial. And already day four, and I'm learning so much about myself, something um, that I don't want to know. Um, learning that's about awesome. and I'm, that's I'm, yeah, and learning about my environment and and kind of fine tuning where and how and what time I meditate. So, if you want to join me, let me know you're going to join me, and we can encourage one another because um, it's been quite the experience, even after four days. So, let me know. And I will encourage as much as possible. And good for so, you on doing that. That's that's awesome that you're doing that. That's a very important challenge. So anyone out there listening, I totally encourage you as well. It's, that's an awesome challenge, and there's only, you know, good things to come of it. So by all means, well, I do got, it. Well, I got the idea from a guy named Kyle C. Never heard of him before. I'm sure I've seen, seen him in movies and what have you, but he's an actor – a comedian, 
and a motivational speaker now. Hilarious. He's so funny. His videos are just, you know, really off the wall and funny. Um, but he did this challenge, and he's still going. He's like on day 110 or something like that. I mean, he's still going with it. And um, I decided I needed to do this because it, I, I needed to challenge myself. I hadn't challenged myself in a while, so... Well, maybe you can share the one of those videos on our page. I would love to see one of those. Oh, I will. He's he's uh, he's funny, and I, I've watched some of his motivational stuff, and um, he's profound, but he's funny, and it just is something that I enjoy. I like the humor along with the profound thoughts and the breakthroughs that happen. So. I will share one of those with you, um, and I think it'll be it'll be really good. One of the things that has really um, gotten to me is the resistance that I've had with the meditation, and uh, the resistance was the biggest thing for me because I could find a million things to do before I sat down to meditate. And um, I find out I'm not the only one that likes to resist things like that, (laughs) things that are good for me. So uh, anyway, all right. So we're talking about toxic parents, and we decided to do a part one today and a part two next week, and I'll get our page updated uh, today or tomorrow, and um, there's just so much information, and it's from the book by Susan Forward, who's a PhD, and the book is Toxic Parents, Overcoming Their Hurtful Legacy and Claiming Your Life. And I was in a bad marriage um, and then raised kids on my own, and I know throughout that time, there were times that I was really a toxic, toxic parent. But I want to find out for sure. <laughs> Tosh is going to enlighten us, and, and then I can find out if I was one of those people. Well, and let me just say, you know, you already said that we're, we're doing a part one and part two. So for those of you that have been keeping up with our show and that we're looking forward to Toxic Faith, which we will be covering at a later date, um, we are going to still cover that topic. We just won't be covering it next week. We're going to break this book up into two parts. And, again, anytime we cover a book, obviously I'm not covering the entire book. Um, there's so much information that remains in the book that I won't be covering that is important. So by all means, I encourage you to purchase the book, Toxic Parents, Overcoming Their Hurtful Legacy and Reclaiming Your Life. The reason that we're doing it in two parts is because the first part, which we will cover today, we don't want to just breeze over any aspect of this book, and we certainly didn't want to breeze over this first part or the second, and certainly not the Reclaiming Your Life part, so we didn't want to try to cram it all into one hour. Um, We also want to encourage you, if you have any you know, experiences, suggestions, or questions regarding it, by all means contact us. Um, if you've had any questions or suggestions regarding the last topics, contact us, facebook.com backslash girlpowerhour. We love hearing from you, and we love getting 
new topics and ideas um, from our listeners because obviously we want you to be interested in what we talk about. Um, yeah. I am not a parent, but I had parents, and they were very toxic parents. Um, I was actually raised by my grandparents um, because I had an absent father and an addicted mother, and my grandparents were equally as toxic, so just on different levels. Um, as such, I'm very familiar with this topic, and um, I had this book because it was part of my healing, and I was referred to this book by my counselor when I went into um when I got counseling for my the issues that resulted from my childhood, um, including, but not limited to, post-traumatic stress disorder. So anyone out there, you know, if you're not a parent, well, you likely had parents or some form of guardian. So this can certainly apply to you. If nothing else, if you ever plan on having kids or if you have kids, it's important to check yourself. Like Annette said, you kind of want to know what kind of parent you are or what kind of parent you will be. Um, I just want to start with actually before she even gets into the chapters, um, season forward, which she has other amazing books too. Let me just mention them really quickly. Men who hate women and the women who love them, obsessive love. And then of course this book, toxic parents. So she's a fantastic author. She writes from the heart, which if any of you read any of my writing, that's certainly where I write from as well. And it's, it's what I enjoy to read. So. Um, none of these books are, are difficult read at all, and they're very important information, certainly good for healing. But right off the bat, before she even gets into the chapters, she talks about uh, who are toxic parents. So I'm just going to list them really quickly and, and kind of let you know what she's given as a descriptor. The inadequate parents, constantly focusing on their own problems, they turn their children into many adults who take care of them. The controllers, they use guilt, manipulation, and even over-helpfulness to direct their children's lives. The alcoholics, mired in denial and chaotic mood swings, their addiction leaves little time or energy for the demands of parenthood. The verbal abusers, whether overtly abusive or subtly sarcastic, they demoralize their children with constant put-downs and rob them of their self-confidence. The physical abusers, incapable of controlling their own deep-seated rage. They often blame their children for their own ungovernable behavior. The sexual abusers, whether flagrantly sexual or covertly seductive, they are the ultimate betrayers, destroying the very heart of childhood, its innocence. And then she puts a very important note at the bottom. You are not to blame for what happened to you as a child, but you can do something about it now. Um, which I love because I often hear people saying that, you know, they're not responsible for who their kids are now. In fact, you are. You have accountability as a parent. Um, Of course, children, as they grow into adults, have accountability to take steps toward becoming better people regardless of what you did to them. But that does not at all um, dismiss any accountability you have as a parent with regard to your children. Um, The first one that I'm going to discuss is is one that I'm familiar with growing up in in my home. I certainly had quite a few of these, not just one, but um, one in particular I think that was quite damaging, which was the godlike parent. 
And so initially she talks about the myth of a perfect parent and says there's two central doctrines in that faith. I am bad, my parents are good. I am weak, my parents are strong. I think a lot of people probably experience this to some degree just because parents sometimes can put that out there even if it's not necessarily a toxic element. But let me give a little bit of a uh, of an idea of what that is. They never let me forget how I disgraced them. That's one little descriptor. Uh, constantly talking about how you let your parents, if the parents are talking about how you've let them down or if you talk to your child about how they've let you down, that's one of those godlike scenarios. We've all made mistakes. Um, and then she talks about the power of denial. Denial is both the most primitive and the most powerful of psychological defenses and employs a make-believe reality to minimize or even negate the impact of certain painful life experiences. It even makes some of us forget what our parents did to us, allowing us to keep them on their pedestals. And of course, I hear that a lot as well. I see people that I know for a fact went through some form of abuse just because, you know, you can tell by the way that they're acting today, their lack of self-confidence, their you know, lack of self-esteem, the ways that they interact with other people in interpersonal relationships. And yet if you were to ask them, you know, what their childhood was like, and they'll deny that there was any abuse of any kind, probably because they had uh, a situation like this, a toxic parent, and they were either told not to see it that way and distorted, um, or it was a godlike situation, and they just denied that it even existed because their, per- their perfect parent would never do anything like that. So she's talking to this author, Susan Forward, was talking to a client of hers, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of what she said. I thought it was powerful, and it shakes that denial. I respect the fact that you love your parents and that you believe they're good people. I'm sure they did some very good things for you when you were growing up, but there's got to be a part of you that knows, or at least senses, that loving parents don't assault their child's dignity and self-worth so relentlessly. I don't want to pull you away from your parents or your religion. You don't have to disown them or renounce the church. But a big part of lifting your depression may, be, may depend on giving up the fantasy that they're perfect. They were cruel to you. They hurt you. Whatever you did, you had already done. No amount of hangering from them was going to change that. Can't you feel how deeply they hurt the sensitive young girl inside you and how unnecessary it was? A lot of times people really struggle with that because if you have this perfect parent in your life, this, this toxic parent who considers themselves perfect and seems to act that way with you, it's very difficult for a child to think that it's okay to think anything less of their parent who's put themselves on that high pedestal. And it's very important for you to realize if that's happened to you, if you've been abused in any way, psychologically, spiritually, anything like that. It's it's okay to look at what it is realistically, and that doesn't make you a bad person for seeing the truth. And then there's a, another little key phrase she gives that people who are in denial often say, they were only trying to help. For many adult children of toxic parents, denial is a simple unconscious process of pushing certain events and feelings out of conscious awareness pretending that those events never happened. And there's a few typical rationalizations she uses. And she's speaking, you know, just generally. So she's using father and mother scenarios. 
My father only screamed at me because my mother nagged him. My mother only drank because she was lonely. I should have stayed home with her. My father beat me, but he didn't mean to hurt me. He only meant to teach me a lesson. My mother never paid any attention to me because she was so unhappy. I can't blame my father for molesting me. My mother wouldn't sleep with him, and men need sex. Now, some of you out there may think that that last one is never something that a child who was molested would say, but by all means, people look for excuses to give their parents for the awful things they do, not just so they don't have to face the pain of it, but so they don't have to see their parents as abusive, toxic parents. That's painful. And then there's the beginning of a sentence. You know, he only did it because looking at, your parents and seeing that there's some pain there and then excusing it with anything is really not helping and it's certainly not acceptable for the child within you because that toxic parent excuses that pain throughout your childhood. For you to grow up and become an adult and excuse it for them is to continue to enable that abuse. And that word enable is something that we discussed last week on our topic of codependency and the next thing that she mentioned Mm -hmm is anger where anger is due. And remember, we discussed Mm -hmm. anger as a gift last week. And that is something everyone really needs to understand. The reason it segues well from codependency is because toxic parents typically breed codependent children and codependent adults as a result. Um, She talks about how we need to express that anger. We need to feel it, that it's okay to feel it because we have every right to be angry with how things happen. You don't want to get stuck there, but certainly process through it. And then she mentions don't speak ill of the dead, which she says may be a treasured platitude, but it often inhibits the realistic resolution of conflicts with dead parents. Death does not end the deification of toxic parents. In fact, it may increase it. As hard as it is to acknowledge the harm done by a living parent, it is infinitely harder to accuse that parent once he or she is dead. There's a powerful taboo against criticizing the dead as if we were kicking them while they're down. As a result, death imparts a sort of sainthood to even the worst abuser, which is extremely harmful to a person mm-hmm. who has survived that abuse. Yeah. And then there's just one last thing I wanted to mention about this specific, specific toxic parent, which again is the godlike parent. Godlike parents make rules, make judgments, and make pain. When you deify your parents, living or dead, you are agreeing to live by their version of reality. You are accepting painful feelings as a part of your life, perhaps even rationalizing them as being good for you. It's time to stop. When you bring your toxic parents down to earth, when you find the courage to look at them realistically, you can begin to equalize the power in your relationship with them. Hmm. I didn't have that issue um, I had some other issues, but that, but I have seen parents like that, and I have heard, you know, people say, "Oh, you know, don't talk ill of the dead," and and that sort of thing. I mean, I don't know why not. They don't care now, but it can help you, <laughs> right? You know, um, it can definitely help you to voice how you're feeling, whether they're alive or dead. Um, 
and it's it's a tough thing. I had to make a decision um, when I found out my dad was dying. Do I discuss with him what I needed to dis- what I felt like I needed to discuss with him? And I finally and this was this was my my answer, and it worked for me, but it won't work for many many people. Um, I decided not to simply because I had done some work ahead of that time and knowing who he was um, and knowing how I am when he denied things, I would just get angry again. Yeah. And so I was able to deal with issues on my own with somebody else, you know, before he died. And then... After he died, it was it was just no big deal anymore. You know, it just didn't affect me. Right. So, uh, if you're not able to work it out with somebody, a counselor, um, you may need to, you know, with your counselor's help, discuss it with the person. I mean that. It makes sense to me. It did yeah, make I agree. Sense for me, that right. it did make sense. You know, it does make sense that it needs to be discussed in some way. I agree. And, you know, in this situation, I mean, I, I do want to point out that once we do talk about toxic faith, that particular piece, the godlike parent, will certainly come into play. So just remember that mm-hmm. for when we do um, announce that particular topic coming up because it will segue into that quite well. If you're a survivor of spiritual abuse, which, yes, by all means exists, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. So the next, the next toxic parent that she mentions is the inadequate parent. And... She says, despite dramatic changes in parental roles over the last 20 years, which this would be even longer now as this was published a while back, the same duties apply to parents today that applied to your parents. They must provide for their children's physical needs. They must protect their children from physical harm. They must provide their children's need for love, attention, and affection. They must protect their children from emotional harm. And they must provide moral and ethical guidelines for their children. She says, clearly the list could go on much longer, but these five responsibilities form the foundation of adequate parenting. The toxic parents we'll be discussing, which are the inadequate ones, rarely get past the first item on the list. They are or were significantly impaired in their own emotional stability or mental health. They are not only often unable or unavailable to meet their children's needs, but in many cases they expect and demand that their children take care of their needs, as in the parents' needs. When a parent forces parental responsibilities on a child, family roles become indistinct, distorted, or reversed. A child who is compelled to become his own parent or even become a parent to his own parent, and I would also include become a parent to his siblings, has no one to emulate, learn from, and look up to. Without a parental role model at this critical state of emotional development, a child's personal identity is set adrift in a hostile sea of confusion. 
kids don't learn. They can't be a child if they're taught to be a parent, and they don't learn. Right. I mean, they're not born into this world knowing how to parent. They're supposed to get that from their parents. It's a. It's just kind of like you know, birds learning to fly. It's something that they have to watch and see, and then they emulate it. And if they are in charge, not only are they robbed of their childhood, which is the next piece she discussed. In the, in the book, which, again, I'm not going to cover all of this, so, again, you should go out and buy it to read all of that part of it. But not only are they robbed of childhood, but they're not learning how to be efficient parents. And then they go on to have children, and that cycle continues generation to generation. Um, she says, uh, typical for children who were forced to exchange emotional roles with their parents to carry, it's typical for them to carry into their adult lives tremendous guilt and an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. As adults, they often become trapped in a vicious cycle of accepting responsibility for everything, inevitably falling short, feeling guilty and inadequate, and then redoubling their efforts. This is a draining, depleting cycle that leads to an ever-increasing sense of failure, and I would add, likely, depression. It mm-hmm. would be difficult to not be that exhausted and that constantly um, constantly anxious and over-responsible and not end up very depressed. Um, and then some of the rationalizations that she would hear is, if I don't take care of their needs, who will? There's a lot of social obligation when it comes to parents. And when I say social obligation, I mean there's this message that's being sent to you. If you cut off your parents, well, you're horrible. If you don't take care of your parents, you're horrible because they brought you into the world. And let me say, as someone who did cut off my family, um, the only family I had living at the time, and cut her off five years before she actually passed away, I was told by counselor after counselor that if it's toxic, it doesn't matter the nature of the relationship, the category it falls under. If it's toxic, cut it off. It's just like cancer. You know, you remove it before it spreads and before it kills you. And ultimately it Mm -hmm. will destroy you. And it may not destroy you physically, although I think eventually it does, because I do believe that all diseases come from unresolved issues that we just allow to fester within us. But even if it doesn't physically kill you, it will destroy who you are, who you are meant to be, and who you could become. Your full potential will never be realized if you don't cut it off. Right. She also yeah, talks about I mean, the codependency checklist. And um, I'm sorry, Annette, I, did I interrupt you? Did you need to add something? You know, it it is important to to do that, and you can do that with love, too. You don't have to um, be hateful or mean about it. You can just say, look, I can't do this. Um, you know, this is not what I'm, I can't do this. I just can't do this. Right. You know, I I love you because I'm blood, <laughs> but, you know, this is just, not going to work for for me right now, and right. you know sometimes and and allowing them to know that they need help as much as you need help, and plant that seed. And if they do it, they do it. And if they don't, they don't. But you don't have to live within that toxicity anymore. Exactly, and that's the idea of 
you know, going from being a child to being an adult, there's the difference. When As a child, you have no choice. I mean, if you yeah. run away, you know, you're considered a runaway. You're breaking the law, essentially. So as a child, you have very little choice as to what kind of toxic environment you're in. As an adult, you can make a choice. And, and one of the steps mm-hmm. into healing yourself and becoming a better person is not just getting the help that you need, which, of course, is by all means the first step, realizing that you need it and, and, and then getting that help so that you don't become a toxic parent or a toxic person, regardless of having kids as well, and so that you can live a fulfilled life um, with wonderful, fulfilled relationships and, and friendships. But it's also remembering that if you get healthy and then constantly subject yourself to an unhealthy environment, mm-hmm. it's not going to work for you. It it, it won't work right. for you to stay healthy, and it, it won't work <coughs> for you to prevent you from relapsing into that old behavior. Um, it's kind of like getting over the flu and then going and hanging out with a lot of people who have the flu. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like, and actually a better analogy would be while you have it, to continue to be around it while your immune system is still compromised. Because as you're healing, as we all know, things don't happen overnight. It takes a long time to unlearn behavior. And during that time, you want as much support as possible. And quite frankly, toxic parents are likely not to support any sort of personal growth because it makes you someone that's no longer accessible in terms of who they can control or manipulate or who can care for them and enable them. So you're probably not going to get a lot of approval and support on any level of personal growth from toxic parents. Um, She goes over the codependency checklist. And again, like I said, we discussed that codependency piece last week. If you missed the show, go to uh, blogtalkradio.com backslash girlpowerhour and you can listen. Um, she uses him here just as a universal pronoun, so just ignore that. I'm a gender piece of it. Um, but here's the checklist, and we're just going over it again, even though we spoke a bit about it last time. Solving his problems or relieving his pain is the most important thing in my life, no matter what the emotional cost to me. My good feelings depend on approval from him. I protect him from the consequences of his behavior. I lie for him, cover up for him, never let others say anything bad about him. I try very hard to get him to do things my way. I don't pay any attention to how I feel or what I want. I only care about how he feels and what he wants. I will do anything to avoid getting rejected by him. I will do anything to avoid making him angry at me. I experience much more passion in a relationship that is stormy and full of drama I am a perfectionist, and I blame myself for everything that goes wrong. I feel angry and appreciated and used a great deal of the time. I pretend that everything is fine when it isn't, and the struggle to get him to love me dominates my life. Now, when we talked about it last week, we referenced a lot about relationships. We did bring in some about parental situations. Annette, you spoke about situations with your kids and being a parent, and we talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about it as it applies to parenting. But when I read this, I mean, of course, as I said, toxic parents typically breed codependent children and then, of course, eventually codependent adults. But when she's talking about this, what she's wanting everyone, the reader, to do is is read that as if you're in a romantic relationship, but then apply it to how children of toxic parents and adult children of toxic parents 
feel toward their parents. Um, many of them, their good feelings don't happen unless they get approval from their parents. They fight their yeah. whole lives to get approved by someone who's really just never going to give that level of approval. They're not capable of it. Um, and they protect their parents from the consequences of their own behavior and lie for them and cover up for them. And certainly these inadequate parents, um, you know, they will do that all the time to try to protect them. Um, at the same time, they'll try hard to get their parents to change, to do things differently, and they won't pay attention to how they feel or what they want. They'll only care about what their parents need um, and continue to care for them. And the list, you know, that I just read continues to apply. So it's very important to look at yourself and your relationship with your parents, especially if you have an inadequate set of parents or parent um, and see if there's codependency there, I would be willing to bet that there is because it's the one way that an inadequate parent can keep you around is to keep you codependent. The invisible child is another piece she mentions under inadequate parents. Parents who focus their energies on their own physical and emotional survival send a very powerful message to their children. Your feelings are not important. I'm the only one who counts. Many of these children, deprived of adequate time, attention, and care, begin to feel invisible, as if they don't even exist. In order for children to develop a sense of self-worth, a sense that they do more than occupy space, that they matter and are important, they need their parents to validate their needs and feelings. I'm going to give you the reverse of that as someone who was a counselor for 10 years with children. If these children become um, or, or think that they have become invisible, if they feel that they don't exist, if they're lacking positive attention, they'll start to try to get negative attention because attention is attention to a child. And if they feel invisible, they'll do whatever they can to not feel that way because that is a very painful feeling. The worst abuse out there is neglect. That's the very worst mm -hmm. of the forms. Um mm -hmm. As such, a child who feels neglected, emotionally neglected, who feels invisible, will do whatever they can to stop that feeling. So a lot of times when you have kids with problematic behavior, a lot of it is that they're just seeking attention that they're not getting anywhere else, certainly not getting any positive attention anywhere else. And then she mentions the vanishing parent, which this would apply to, like I said, my father who was absent. The physical absence creates its own set of problems as well, and I think anyone could probably relate to that and understand that pretty quickly, that a parent who isn't there, um, just because they're not there doesn't mean they don't have an effect. It's haunting. That, that void is typically very haunting. Even if it's handled in the healthiest of ways by the person that is there, um, which typically it isn't, but, you know, yeah. on those rare occasions where it is, it's still something that that child has to face and deal with and needs help to deal with and it may not be something that the parent who is there can help them with because we're not all equipped with that knowledge and information and so sometimes it is better to pull in a professional when you're dealing with a solo parenting situation and give your child the best opportunity to heal from that because by all means it's painful um, and then the idea that uh, these parents will change that it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different. She mentions that, um, that there's going to be a difference in the parent because they said there will be. We all know from talking in the past on our radio shows about addiction, 
a lot of promises get made. And it's not that parents don't want to change, but it takes a lot to change. And sometimes these parents aren't willing to take those steps. The only person that you can change is you, and the only person that you can protect is you. And so you just have to continue to remember that you can get counseling and you can make changes and you can cut that relationship off and you can move on. And if down the road that parent calls you having had years of counseling and actually being a different person, then you can relook at that. But as it is, it's best to just remember that history repeats itself and lepers don't change their spots. A parent's departure creates a particularly painful deprivation and emptiness within a child. Remember, children almost always conclude that if something negative happens within the family, it's their fault. Children of divorced parents are particularly prone to this belief. A parent who vanishes from his children's lives forces their feelings of invisibility, creating damage to their self-esteem that they'll drag into adulthood like a ball and chain. So I can say from two different aspects, my father being absent really honestly didn't make me feel as though I was not valuable. My mother, however, being an addict and sitting me on the bed at five years old and telling me that she was leaving did because it made me feel like I had done something to push her away and that there was something just not valuable enough in me that she would choose me over a lifestyle a drug, whatever it was that was pulling her from me. So it's very important to remember that even if you are a solo parent and you yourself are healthy in this situation and you're doing everything, you know, quote, unquote, the right way, your child is still struggling with that one aspect. And they may not talk to you about it. They may tell you that they feel fine simply because they don't want you to worry. There's a lot of reasons children don't talk about what they're feeling. So you, it's really best sometimes to find an objective adult that they can speak to that can help them work through it, that has the training and the experience and education to help them work through their feelings. And just um, one more piece on this I want to read really quickly. This is a little long, but I think that it's very important. It's what they didn't do that hurts. It's easy to recognize abuse when a parent beats a child or subjects a child to continual tirades. But the toxicity of inadequate or deficient parents can be elusive, difficult to define. When a parent creates damage through omission rather than commission, through what they don't do rather than what they do, the connections of adult problems to this sort of toxic parenting become very hard to see. Since the children of these parents are predisposed to deny those connections anyway, a counselor's job becomes especially difficult. Compounding the problem is the fact that many of these parents are so troubled themselves that they evoke pity because these parents so often behave like helpless or irresponsible children. Their adult children feel protective. They jump to their parents' defense like a crime victim apologizing for their perpetrator. Whether it's they didn't mean to do any harm or they did the best they could, these apologies obscure the fact that these parents abdicated their responsibilities to their children. So this abdication, these toxic parents rob their children of positive role models without, without which healthy emotional development is extremely difficult. If you are the adult child of a deficient or inadequate parent, you probably grew up without realizing that there was an alternative to feeling responsible for them, dancing at the end of their emotional string 
seemed a way of life, not a choice. But you do have a choice. You can begin the process of understanding that you were wrongly forced to grow up too soon, that you were robbed of your right childhood. You can work on accepting how much of your life's energy has gone down the drain of misplaced responsibility and take this first step and find a new way to reserve that energy that is suddenly available to you for the first time, energy that you've exhausted on your toxic parents much of your life, which can finally be used to help you become more loving and responsible to yourself. And I think that's key and very important for all of you out there that have struggled with that, including myself, um, to remember that you do have a choice. Yes, your parents may have just blatantly sucked. It may have just been a horrible childhood, but it doesn't have to be an equally as horrible adulthood. That's up to you. That's where you have the power and can be empowered to change. Yeah, and I see a lot of people and see a lot of people continue in negative choices all throughout adulthood just because they had parents that sucked. Right. And it's once we hit at a certain age, we can't do anything about that. All we can do is change this time, this person, you know, this time now, this present time. And we can't, sitting there blaming gets us nowhere. We just stay stuck. And as soon as you're aware of the fact that, oh gosh, you know, yeah, my parents sucked and they did this and they did that and that's why I'm feeling and doing the things I am now. Well, as soon as you have that, re, you know, that reality in your mind, it's time to do something about it. Exactly. Exactly. It's important to remember that you can be your own best parent. Um, God knows I've had to be and that's had to be. <laughs> you have to just... Uh, take those steps, those important steps, and do something about it and become your own best parent because you cannot sit around blaming your parents for what happened. You can, by all means, hold them responsible for what they did. Sure. And you can, by all means, hold them accountable. And you don't have to forgive. I'm sorry, you don't. You can certainly, for yourself, you can accept what happened. You can um, come to a place of understanding and compassion, but... Preaching forgiveness to someone who's been abused can be equally as abusive, I know from experience. Um, When a person's ready to take a step like that, they can take it. If they never are, that's okay. As long as they move on with their lives, as long as you move on with your life and make it your life and not just a product of your parents, but your life, then that's fine with me. Um, My personal belief is sometimes people don't deserve it forgiveness. Sometimes people just don't. Sometimes it's just too painful to look at someone that's robbed you of that much and say, I forgive you. You can forgive yourself um, for the feelings that you have. You can forgive yourself for any situation that's occurred as a result of that childhood. Um, And you can certainly have compassion and learn compassion for it. And I don't want you to stay angry for the rest of your life, but it's different. Forgiveness is different from when you're a survivor of abuse. 
it's one thing to forgive somebody for lying to you. It's another to say I forgive you for robbing me of my childhood and abusing me throughout the entire time you were here and taking advantage of me as a young child and my innocence and, and robbing me of innocence altogether. Um, that's a different, a different place to be. And not everybody's going to get there, and not everybody needs to. So if somebody preaches that to you, just walk away because you're on your own journey, and you'll get there when you're ready to. The next see, for, part is... For me, excuse me, for me, yeah, it's more semantic than anything else. Mm-hmm. To, uh, forgiveness to me is not, oh, it's okay, you know, you did. It's okay. You did this to me. Forgiveness to me is coming to that understanding and coming to an understanding of compassion mm-hmm. and not in um, moving forward. It's not saying that it's okay. For me, forgiveness is that. Right. And it may it, it may be semantics for everyone and people do have different yeah. definitions. So if your definition is that then that's perfectly fine. But when we're talking about the definition of oh, it's okay, I forgive for you most, that's a whole different yeah, deal. No, it's not okay. Yeah. So the next piece that she talks about is um the controllers. That's the next set of toxic parents. Um You'll hear yourself saying, why can't they let me live my own life if you have one of these? I don't, I'm not brazing over this or trying to skip anything. Again, this book is something that's invaluable for you to have on your bookshelf or in your Kindle. By all means, get it and read all the stuff that I'm missing here that I'm skipping through, not because it's not important, but because we just don't have time to cover it. Um, but I did want to read one piece that controlling parents certainly cause for their children and adult children, there's no separate identity. Um, I did deal with this as well, so I do understand this is, again, a very serious situation. I'm not trying to dismiss it by only sharing one piece, but I felt this covered it quite well. Parents who feel good about themselves do not have to control their adult children, but the toxic parents we've met in this chapter, which is controlling parents, operate from a deep sense of dissatisfaction with their lives and a fear of abandonment. Their child's independence is like the loss of a limb to them. As the child grows older, it becomes even more important for the parent to pull the strings that keep the child dependent. As long as toxic parents can make their son or daughter feel like a child, they can maintain control. As a result, adult children of controlling parents often have a very blurred sense of identity. They have trouble seeing themselves as separate beings from their parents. They can't distinguish their own needs from their parents' needs. They feel powerless. All parents control their children until those children gain control of their own lives. In normal families, the transition occurs soon after adolescence. In toxic families, this healthy separation is delayed for years or sometimes forever. It can only occur after you have made the changes that will enable you to gain mastery over your own life. You have a toxic controlling parent, that is something that you'll most likely have to break free of. You will be able to get counseling and help and learn how to set boundaries. Um, However, you'll have to remember you cannot change people. So just because 
you can go in and learn how to take control of your own life, the best thing you'll be able to do is set boundaries with these controlling parents and hope that they honor them. And if they don't, then it may come down to having that conversation that Annette spoke about earlier, a very loving way to detach from them. Um, In the interest of time, I'm moving on forward to the alcoholics, which is the next set of toxic parents. No one in this family is an alcoholic is one of the things you might hear. Um, Don't talk, don't trust, don't tell is a big rule set in the alcoholic family. She says the big secret has three elements. The alcoholic's denial of his or her alcoholism in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary and in the face of behavior that is both terrifying and humiliating to other family members. The denial of the problem by the alcoholic's partner and frequently by other members of the family. They commonly excuse the drinker with excuses like mom just drinks to relax, um, dad tripped on the carpet, dad lost his job because he had a mean boss, all sorts of excuses to um, negate these consequences. The charade of the normal family, a facade that the family presents to one another and to the world, constantly saying that the drinking is normal, that there's nothing wrong. In fact, pulling in other people that also drink very heavily to make it look more normal because obviously an alcoholic family can't really hang out with a sober one and look normal. The charade of the normal family is especially damaging to a child because it forces him to deny the validity of his own feelings and perception. It is almost impossible for a child to develop a strong sense of self-confidence if he must constantly lie about what he is thinking and feeling. His guilt makes him wonder whether people believe him. When he grows older, this sense that people doubt him can continue, causing him to shy away from revealing anything of himself or venturing an opinion. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to keep the charade going. The child must always be on guard. He lives in constant fear that he may accidentally expose and betray his family. To avoid that, he often makes friends and thereby, often avoids making friends and thereby becomes isolated and lonely. This loneliness drags him deeper into the family maladaption. He develops an enormous and distorted sense of loyalty to the only people who share his secret, his family co-conspirators. Intense, uncritical loyalty to his parents becomes second nature. When he grows to adulthood, he blindly, loyally remains destructive and controlling in the elements of trying to keep people from seeing what he doesn't want to see. So if ever you've met someone that has an alcoholic parent, and I have experienced this numerous times working in the field of addiction and also just with friends, when they're discussing it, oftentimes they will not refer to their parent as an alcoholic or a drunk or anything that they perceive as negative. They'll just say he drinks too much. They'll say Mm -hmm. he has a drinking problem. And that's about as close Mm -hmm. as they can come to using the terminology that actually fits. Um. Annette, did you have anything, do you have any experiences there that you wanted to share? You know, I I was never around, my, both my parents didn't drink. I mean, I seldom saw them drink. But I have been around a lot of functioning alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they have a job. They, you know, do everything right to the outward world. But... You know, when you see them at home, it's a whole different story. You see the chaos within the the household. Um, And a lot of times, 
I knew one person who held a very good job and would come home and both her and her husband would drink and even allowed their teenage kids to drink at home mm-hmm. with the reasoning, I would rather them drink at home than be out at a party to drink, which they're right. going to drink at a party anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was it was just heartbreaking to see the chaos that comes from that and the um, the denial. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong. I've got a job. You know, I, I put a roof over my kids' heads and I feed them and they have new clothes and, and all of this, but it's all the emotional stuff that they're going through. You know, sure. how are these kids feeling? Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I, I, as you know, write for some different uh, publications, and Stages of Recovery is one of them. StagesofRecovery.net. If you're looking for it online, um, you can go to the recovery support um, link, and and you'll find much of the article, many of the articles I've written there. But one of them recently, and it's a four-part series about addiction in the workplace, and the first piece of it discusses what you just said: functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So many people have a view of alcoholism as a bum on the street who's homeless and jobless. That's an advanced stage of alcoholism, but yeah. it is by no means the definition of alcoholism. Alcoholism, um, you know, if you have negative consequences that you continue to drink regardless, there's so many different criteria that you can fit. And still, just because you have a job doesn't mean that you don't have negative consequences because those negative consequences, as you said, Annette, could be occurring in the home where people aren't seeing. And right. Just because, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's so many stories out there and certainly research you can do about functioning alcoholics that would include doctors and lawyers and teachers and all sorts of people you would never assume would be alcoholics simply because they maintain some level of success and some alcoholics have a very great deal of success, monetary success as well. But our society has to get to a point where we don't look at that as a gauge of whether or not someone is mentally healthy. Just because they're successfully or financially successful doesn't mean that they're mentally healthy. And so that's something I would I would encourage everyone out there to think about if you're wondering whether or not your parent um, was an alcoholic or whether or not you are. That's something to think about. Just because you have a job doesn't, doesn't mean that there's not a problem. And let me say this before we wrap up um, for this particular part one of this series. This is from the author. I suggest to all my clients who came from homes where alcohol or drugs were abused that our work together could be greatly accelerated by their joining adult children of alcoholics or a similar organization. These groups provide excellent support, and through this exchange of experiences and feelings, children of alcoholics and drug abusers come to realize that they are not alone. They can face up to the dinosaur in the living room, which is the first step towards driving out. And I'm agreeing with her wholeheartedly on that um, I actually have a book that is um, Daily Affirmations for the Adult Child of the Alcoholic. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic and addict, and as such, I I know how important it is to get that sort of help. So if you're listening out there and your parent is, was an alcoholic or addict, and when I say was, I mean that as, and they may be in recovery today, but throughout your childhood they were active in their addiction, by all means, get the help you need, even if you yourself are sober you still have issues resulting from that, by all means, look at them, face them, 
so that you can offer your children and yourself a better life. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, we people who suffered from toxic parents in any form, um, we are responsible to look at our past and look at our present and what's possible in the future and make those better decisions and get the help that we need in order to move forward in a more positive way. And that's one of the hardest things. We don't want to see our parents as or toxic in any way. And, you know, I don't want my kids look at me as being a toxic parent. But I know I was at one point in time a controller. I know at one point in time I screamed a lot. Um, and all because of my own stuff that I was going through. And had to work through that, you know, in order to be a better parent. And all I can do is hope that I was, you know, that I became a better parent uh, through getting some help and and being aware of the things that I needed to, to do in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's all we can do. But it is our responsibility as parents to discover who we are, how we parent. Is it good? Is it going to have negative consequences for our kids? Um, we have to take a look at that, right. plain and simple, and make changes. Because we're, we brought these little humans into the world, and we're responsible. We think that these are beings with souls, <laughs> what are we doing to them? And, right. you know, can we change it to make it better for them? And yeah, I know we're, we're about to run out of time. We have like two minutes. So I just want to let everyone know that's listening. Um, we will be talking about next week, we'll have part two, and we'll be talking about verbal abusers, physical abusers, sexual abusers, and the family system. And then we'll talk about reclaiming your life, including that piece about you don't have to forgive, um, which is the first part of that, and going through the ways in which to reclaim it, because just like Annette said, that's our responsibility, to reclaim our life, not only for ourselves, but for our kids. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will talk to everyone next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central Time and part two of Toxic Parents. So tune in. Bye.